The headlines tonight. Luftwaffe lufts itself to victory over RF in Heligoland. Granada muslin revolt. And Copenhagen compromises on climate. Plus, coming up, woman sues Sony after PlayStation makes hot coffee. Those are the headlines. Now blow me a kiss. News bang, blunt but not crude. Alessi's 1939. 1939, and it's a dark day for the RAF as the dastardly Luftwaffe deal them a crushing blow in the Battle of Heligoland Bight. The skies above were filled with the roar of engines and the stench of burning spitfires. The RAF, fresh from their victory in World War I, where they'd become the world's largest air force, after downing a record number of sausages, were caught napping by the cunning Hun. The battle marked the start of a long campaign to defend Germany from itself, known as Operation Keeping Up Appearances. Bomber Command vowed to only target military targets such as factories making tanks and ships for use in the Battle of the Atlantic, which was an annual swimming gala between Britain and Germany until 1939 when it got too competitive. RFA Spigglesworth Smythe said, It was carnage. I saw my tail gunner ejected into space and re-enter over Dover. Meanwhile, in Berlin, Goering crowed, We'll be goose-stepping up Whitehall by Christmas. But this reporter says, Don't count your yunkers before they've crashed. 1499. In 1499, the year of our Lord, the Muslims of Granada had had enough of this Catholic nonsense. They'd been forced to convert or face the consequences, and frankly, they'd had it up to their turbans. So, they did what any reasonable person would do. They rebelled. The uprising started in Granada and spread like wildfire to the Alpajaras region. King Ferdinand of Castile, who was probably fed up with his in-laws at this point, decided he'd had enough and sent his troops to put an end to the shenanigans. Well, let me tell you, those Moors didn't stand a chance against the might of Ferdinand's Christian soldiers. The Crown of Castile, along with their pals in Navarre and Aragon, decreed that all Muslims must convert or else, well, more of this crusading business. The forced conversions were so rampant that even El Cid was spinning in his grave, if he wasn't still alive at the time. The lesson here, don't mess with the Spanish Inquisition. I mean, don't mess with King Ferdinand when he's got a crusade on his hands. In a landmark agreement, world leaders have finally agreed to do nothing about climate change. The Copenhagen Summit on Climate Change held in Copenhagen, Denmark, in the year 209, produced the non-binding Copenhagen Accord. This groundbreaking document, which delegates agreed to take note of, acknowledges that human activities like burning fossil fuels may or may not be causing the Earth to get warmer. We're all going to die, said one panicked bystander, but at least we've got a piece of paper that says we're aware of it. The Accord pledges to keep global warming below 2 degrees Celsius if it doesn't inconvenience anyone and promises 10 euro 0 cents billion a year by 200 and 2020 to help poorer countries adapt to the impending apocalypse. Critics have called the deal woefully inadequate and a bit of a joke, but delegates defended their actions. Look, said one weary negotiator, we had a good chat about it and everything. What more do you want? News bang, fetching the slippers of facts.
Shakanaka Giles is here to give us the weather report. He'll be sharing details about the conditions in various regions across the country. So listen in for your local forecast and any tips on how to stay comfortable during these changing weather patterns. Today's weather is a bit of a doozy. In the southwest is a perfect day for those who enjoy an icy soak like a duck in a pond. The raindrops will be falling gently, just like the tears of an orphan at Christmas. Over to the Midlands, where it'll be a chilly one, about as cold as a corpse, but bundle up and you'll be fine. Lastly, Scotland and the north of England will have some gusty winds, like a vengeful ex trying to snatch your hat off your head. In summary, drizzly ducks, chilly corpses and vengeful exes, and that's all the weather. Alessi's 1939 This evening, we report on the events of 1939 when World War II commenced, a conflict that would leave its indelible mark upon humanity. The Battle of the Heligoland Bight, a skirmish between the RAF and the Luftwaffe, signalled the start of an arduous air war. To shed more light on these events, we've just received a call from our correspondent Brian Bastable, discussing the strategic ramifications of these historic battles. Listen in as we continue our exploration of World War II through the lens of air power and its far-reaching consequences. We interrupt this evening's festivities for a special report from your humble correspondent, Brian Bastable Newsbang, at the front line of the Battle of Heligoland Bight as it is being fought right now for your viewing pleasure. The sky above us is awash with fire. Planes dive, turn, climb, fall. We are in the midst of an aerial ballet where even the choreography is a matter of life and death. This is the dogfight to end all dogfights. Pilots dive into each other like lovers locked in an eternal embrace only to pull up at the last moment, slipstreaming past one another in a deadly game of chicken. Machines roar and shudder, guns blaze, flames spurt from crippled planes cascading across the sky in a fiery symphony. It's like watching a thousand fireworks go off at once. But the fighters are not the only stars of this aerial spectacular. Below us, the bombers wait their turn, their bodies trembling with anticipation as they make their final checks on their deadly payloads. As we speak, the RAF is mounting a heroic defense, making one last stand against the Luftwaffe's unrelenting assault. Their courage is matched only by their desperation. This is a fight to the finish. No quarter will be given, no mercy shown. There will be no tomorrow for those who dare to challenge the might of the British Air Force. But as we stand here, poised on the knife edge of history, one thing is clear. This is the Battle of Heligoland Bight, and we are all witnesses to a turning point in human history. A war for the ages, a fight to the death, the likes of which we shall never see again. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a war. Brian Bastable, Newsbang.
1979. The year is 1979. Mohammad Mufateh, an Iranian philosopher, theologian, and political activist, was assassinated by the Fakan Group, an Iranian opposition militant group. He received his education in Hamadan and Qom, studying under reputable teachers. He earned his PhD and became a professor and dean at Tehran University. The Furkan group adhered to a Shia anti-clerical Islamist ideology. Greetings, degenerates. As we travel back in time to the year 1979, let's pay our respects to a man who dared to challenge the status quo and make a difference in this godforsaken world. I'm talking about Muhammad Mufateh, an Iranian philosopher, theologian, and political activist who was brutally assassinated by a pack of cowardly scumbags known as the Furkan Group. Mufateh was an educated man, having received his education in Hamadan and Qom under some of the most reputable teachers around. He earned his PhD and became a professor and dean at Tehran University. This guy was a force to be reckoned with, a shining beacon of hope in a sea of darkness. But then came the Furkan Group, those bastards who adhered to a Shia anti-clerical Islamist ideology. They saw Mufateh as a threat to their twisted beliefs and decided that the only way to silence him was through cold-blooded murder. And so they did what they do best. They assassinated him in broad daylight like cowards hiding behind their guns. This is Ken Shit reminding you that there are still people out there who will stop at nothing to silence those who dare to speak truth to power. But we won't forget Muhammad Mufateh or the countless others like him who have given their lives for the cause of justice and freedom. Rest in peace, brother. Your legacy lives on. News bang. Flicking the on-off switch of the washing machine of reality. Joining us now is Ryder Boff, who's going to take us back in time to the first ever playoff game of the National Football League in 1932. This match was played indoors due to bad weather conditions and featured the Chicago Bears and Portsmouth Spartans. It was a significant moment in American football history, as it marked the beginning of a lifelong love affair with the sport for many fans. Ladies and gentlemen, let us travel back in time to the year 1932. Are you ready for some footy? The year is 1932 and the Chicago Bears are about to take on the Portsmouth Spartans in the first ever playoff game of the National Football League. But wait, there's a twist. Due to the inclement weather conditions, this game will be played indoors. Yes, you heard that right, at the famous Chicago Stadium. That's right, folks. The stadium that houses the Chicago Blackhawks and Chicago Bulls will host an American football match. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't quite understand this football business. It appears to involve a lot of running around, smashing into one another, and occasionally passing or kicking an odd-shaped ball. But hey, who am I to judge? You see, back in the day, Americans were a simple bunch. They didn't have the internet, television, or even motorways for that matter. And so they turned to football, now known as soccer, for entertainment. But for those brave souls who dare to venture into the world of American football, they quickly learn that it's more than just a game, it's a way of life. The fans are fiercely loyal, the players are hard as nails, and the cheerleaders, well, they're the stuff of legend. 
And so, onto the field they went, battling it out like two great warrior tribes, the Bears and the Spartans, two names that will live on in infamy. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't quite remember who won that day. But I do remember standing there in the stands watching the game with my old man. We had a few beers, some popcorn and a game of Spot the Cheerleader. And let me tell you, those ladies certainly knew how to shake their pom-poms. And see... Ah... As the whistle blew and the players staggered off the field, exhausted and battered, my old man turned to me and said, Son, that was quite the match, wasn't it? And with that, we hoisted our beers high and cheered for the Bears, our faithful and fearless warriors. And so, here's to the year 1932, a time when things were simpler, and America's love affair with football was just beginning. May the spirit of the Bears never be forgotten. Until next time, folks. Penelope Winchime is about to present a segment on the non-binding Copenhagen Accord, a document signed in 2009 by global leaders addressing climate change. The Accord aimed to raise awareness and encourage action towards reducing human impact on the environment. Tune in for her perspective on this historic event. Oh dear listeners and leaf rustlers, on this day in 2009, a gaggle of global guardians gathered in the Grand Guild Hall of Copenhagen. There they scribbled upon parchment, not in ink, but with the very essence of hope. This document, the non-binding Copenhagen Accord, fluttered like a lonesome leaf descending upon the world stage. And what was this tender scroll? A missive to Mother Earth? A love letter to our long-suffering atmosphere? Nay, it was an invitation to dance round the maypole of climate change beyond the mystical era of 2012. The bold souls present agreed to take note of it, as one might take note of a unicorn in one's petunias. But cry not, my green-thumbed companions, for though non-binding it may seem, like a dandelion wish cast into the tempestuous winds of bureaucracy, it beckoned potentates and policy peddlers alike to ponder, yes, ponder deeply, the warming whisper that is human-kissed climate change. Born from the chimney's billowed breath and engine's beastly roar as they burn the ancient sunlight trapped in fossilised tombs. The accord, afloat on Copenhagen currents, would gently graze upon their consciousness with as much clout as an icicle under sunny scrutiny. Yet fear not, for even mere notes can crescendo into symphonies when hearts are ablaze with fervour for Gaia's grace. So mark well this day from yesteryear, a day not bound by solemn promises but set aloft on promissory zephyrs. And perhaps one day we shall bind ourselves not just to notes, but deeds as mighty as Thor's hammer against our carbon-encrusted sins. This, this has been your scribe of sustainability, Penelope Windchime. May your days be merry and bright and your carbon footprints lighter than a snowflake's gallivant across winter skies. In the next segment, Polly Beep will take us through a traffic report from different time periods. Keep an ear out for her updates on road conditions and unexpected incidents that might affect your daily commute.
Welcome to a traffic report from the year 2017. Today's highways are looking as smooth as a bowling lane, but be warned, there's trouble ahead. The Amtrak Cascades passenger train has derailed near DuPont, Washington, causing untold chaos and confusion. Three people have been tragically killed and 65 injured. You see, the train was on its inaugural run of the Point Defiance Bypass, a new passenger rail route that was supposed to reduce congestion and separate passenger and freight traffic. Sadly, it seems Sound Transit neglected to mitigate a curve at the accident location and didn't adequately train the train engineer. Remember kids, curves are for spooning, not speeding. Now let's take you back in time to 1867. Trains were roaring down tracks, but still had kinks to work out. An unfortunate incident occurred in Angola, New York, where a train derailed and caught fire, leading to approximately 49 deaths. It seems the Lakeshore Railway wasn't as smooth as it should have been, one of the deadliest train wrecks in American history. Inch. To make matters worse, Angola is also known for its gullies, landforms created by running water and erosion caused by intense rainfall or snowmelt. Just another day on the rails back then. For our present day commute updates, remember to always keep your eyes peeled for unexpected twists and turns on our roads. We wouldn't want you getting lost in history like those poor passengers from 1867. 1966. Calamity Prenderville is here to discuss the fascinating world of Saturn's moons and their unique origins. She'll take us through the intriguing story of how a British invention accidentally created two new moons, Epimetheus and Janus, which share an orbit around Saturn. We'll also learn about other moons in Saturn's orbit, such as Titan, Enceladus, and Iapetus. This segment promises to be a captivating journey into the mysteries of our solar system. Well, 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 it seems like the British are at it again. This time, they've managed to invent a way to make Saturn's moons even more interesting. In 1966, a pair of moons named Epimetheus and Janus were discovered orbiting around the ringed planet. But what makes these moons so special? Well, for one, they share the same orbit. That's right, they dance around Saturn together like a pair of lovebirds. But that's not all. These moons are also known for their unique shapes and features. Epimetheus is said to resemble a potato, while Janus has a face-like appearance. But wait, there's more! These moons aren't just any old satellites. They're actually the result of a British invention called the Moon-Making Machine. This machine was designed to create artificial moons for use in space travel. However, due to a slight malfunction, the machine accidentally created two real moons instead. And let's not forget about the other moons in Saturn's orbit. There's Titan, which is bigger than all the other moons combined and is covered in rivers and lakes of liquid methane. Then there's Enceladus, which shoots out ice jets like a geyser and has a warm underground ocean. And finally, there's Iapetus, which has black and white hemispheres that look like a yin-yang symbol. The British are truly pioneers in the field of moon making and moon discovering. They've given us so many reasons to look up at the night sky and marvel at the wonders of the universe. Who knows what other lunar discoveries they'll make in the future? Only time will tell. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. 
Newsbang, poking the bear of bad news with a stick of stupidity. Lee, 1996. Back in 1996, the School Board of Oakland, California, designated African American Vernacular English, AAVE, as a distinct language or dialect. AAVE is spoken by both working class and middle class African Americans in urban areas, as well as some black Canadians. The decision led to debates on the education of African American youths and the place of language in classrooms and society. Journalist Smithsonian Moss has filed a report on this issue. Now, at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Ho, y'all. It's your girl, Smithsonian Moss, back at it again with the wild culture news. And trust me, today's treasure is gonna make you go, ooh. Yeah, we're time hopping today, my monsters. All the way back to 96 when the school board of Oakland, California was like, yo, let's officially declare African American vernacular English, AAVE, to be like its own lit language or dialect. So for all you squares out there, AAV is the dope slang that black working and middle class folks, some Canuck blacks and urban dwellers in general, have been spitting since Jesus had two daddies. It's the language of the struggle and the language of expression. Bay. And guess who was all about it back then? No one. That's who. The decision was like a stick of ice in Gwyneth Paltrow's smoothie, stirring up all sorts of shot around the education of black youths, and if Av was going to have a place in the classroom and society or if it was going to be labeled a fucking criminal language. Crazy, right? The debates were lamer than a fire truck at a ballet recital. Some folks were like, word up, home slice, let's embrace it and help the future leaders of the ghetto to grow and communicate with the outside world. While others were all, hold up, stop it, cancel that. Av has got to go, or the future of America will just end up saying y'all like white folk. It was hard times, baby. But don't worry, because nowadays, we're celebrating the slanguage of the BIPOC fam, showing love for that side-slingin', slang-spittin' rhythm nation. You feel me? So let's give it up for the Oakland School Board of 96 who decided that Av wasn't just another voice, but THE voice. A voice to be embraced, understood, and taught. Remember, y'all, Smithsonian Moss is always down for some crazy, uncensored, ridiculous culture news. So stay tuned and always remember, that's just satire, babe. And this is all just for you. News bang, injecting facts into the cynicism of cynics. 1499. In 1499, a significant event was the rebellion that broke out in Granada among the Muslims against their Castilian rulers. This uprising was sparked by the enforced conversions to Catholicism demanded by these crowns. The action spread to the Alpujarras region before being crushed by King Ferdinand, which led to further punishment and religious persecution for Spain's Muslim community. Joining us now is news correspondent Pastor Kevin Monstrance to elaborate further on this period of history. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I don't mean to cause a stir, 
but this new fad for forced conversions has me more perplexed than a hen in a foxhole. Why, just the other day, I popped round old Mrs. Cholmondley Warner's place. Lovely woman, faced like a bag of spanners, and she's only gone and converted her drawing room into a ruddy great temple. Idols everywhere, clouds of incense, and some strange fellow called Guru Sanjay chanting away night and day. <laughs> Turns out she's converted to Hinduism after some door-to-door Hare Krishnas caught her at a weak moment, signed her life savings over to them quicker than you could say Namaste. <laughs> Even more perplexing was the case of my dear old school chum, Armitage Bullivant Fitcher. Now, old army was Church of England through and through. Or so I thought. That was until the wife and I popped by unexpectedly last Michaelmas and found the man prostrating himself towards Mecca dressed in full Muslim garb. Turns out he'd been converted by an enthusiastic band of Sufis who promised him a harem of virgins in paradise if he said the Shahada. <laughs> well, you know our army... Never could say no to a pretty face or seventy. <laughs> but the most baffling case had to be regarding my distant cousin Throckmorton P. Dribblesby. Old Throcky was a dyed-in-the-wool atheist, vehemently opposed to all forms of religion. Why, he hadn't voluntarily set foot in a church since his own christening. So imagine my shock when I rang him up last Easter, only to be told he'd converted to Catholicism and joined a monastery. After some probing, it turned out a gang of particularly pushy Jesuits had forced their way into his home and refused to leave until he renounced science and embraced Mother Church. They'd held the poor sod hostage for a week, making him kneel for hours on end, reciting Hail Marys, until he cracked. <laughs> In the end, what can one do but shrug and accept that faith moves in mysterious ways? Although between you and me, I think Throckmorton was just in it for the monastery brewery. Nothing like a daily dose of Trappist ale to ease your transition to cloistered life. Why, I'll bet if those Jesuits had stocked his cellar with a fine English bitter instead, he'd have sent them packing quicker than you could say Pax Vobiscum. <laughs> well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for tonight. Do take care, avoid strange religious salesmen and remember... When it comes to matters of faith, it's always best to choose your own path. Ta-ta for now. And now, let's have a look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times. Argentina triumph in Qatar, World Cup shocker. They've got a map of South America with little flags on it. The Guardian. Titanic tragedy, recreated in 1997, film epic. There's a picture of Leonardo DiCaprio looking wet. The Sun. Henry II, crowned king in Westminster Abbey coronation drama. They've got a photo of the Abbey with a crown on top. The Biano. Dennis the Menace causes havoc at World Cup final. Tomorrow's pullout is spot the ball on the Falkland Islands. And finally, The Spectator. Man wakes up as horse after eating expired tikka masala. There's an x-ray there of a man-horse hybrid. That's it from me and Newsbank. Good night, and don't forget to tune in tomorrow for more historical hilarity. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. Good night.